Well, guys, grab a Bible. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts tonight. Super excited to be there uh, tonight, and so inviting you to head over to Acts chapter 1. Wednesday nights, we seek to make our way through the Bible, a chapter at a time at least, you know, kind of in that space where I say hopefully a chapter at a time, I probably should say, uh, in, in that space of just journeying through the Scriptures. And I hope that in kind of that wider angle lens that God would just take His Word and, and meet us in that. So we're moving progressively through that, and so we're jumping back and forth between Old Testament and New, and so we finished up the book of Proverbs at the end of last year, and then we did this special study on how to study the Bible, and so now we're back. I'm excited for that, excited to be here in the Scriptures, and hoping you are as well. So if you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have one, they're in front of you, and the chairs are in front of you, page number on the screen. You can use an electronic device, however that works. We want to invite you to be there with us, to be in the Word of God, to be in that space where uh, we would be open uh, to God speaking, God working in our lives, those things that He has for us, and so longing that that would be where you are this evening. And so with that in mind, let me just begin us and just again ask for God's help in prayer. And I'm just going to invite you to do the same. Just ask that God would speak to you, that He would make His Word known to you and those things that He has in store. Father, thank you right now. Thank you for this space. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good. Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you would say to us right now? Would you work in power this evening? Would you make it so that what you're wanting to say, we would hear? God, by your power, just acknowledging need and help for you to make clear, for you to make just working into our lives exactly what we needed to hear. And I look to you, and you're the only one who can do that. But just give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us this evening. We're asking for that as we thank you tonight for your good favor, your blessing, and your work. We acknowledge you right now and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I thought I would just begin by telling you guys that you are the awfulest congregation I've ever known. Um, I say that with a tongue-in-cheek because that's actually who this book is written to. It's written to Theophilus, which is, well, I wonder if it's us. Hey, notice it with me there in verse 1 with my play on words. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Theophilus literally means uh, one who loves God. That's, that's the name that it's rendered there. It's two Greek words that are put together together. Theo is God, uh, the Greek word for God, phileo, uh, that is put there is this idea of love or sometimes even friendship love. And so Theophilus, though it would sound like a pretty odd name, uh, no offense, Theo, if you're watching because you're not actually named Theophilus, but, um, you, know, you, just, you know, you find yourself thinking, you know, like you name your kid Theophilus, you know, it's like, but in that day, what an incredibly cool name. Now we think about who this is written to, and as we just begin it, we we don't really know a lot about it. It could be that Theophilus was the benefactor uh, behind this book. It could be that he was the one that, you know, made it possible for Luke, the writer of this, to write it. It could be within that culture that he was even his master, that many times doctors, which Luke, we know, who writes this book, was a doctor, many times would find themselves uh, in a place where they would be a slave in the midst of that culture. And so it's been kind of just guessed at in the many ways that those things could be possible. This we do know. It is written by Luke, the only Gentile writer of the, of the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of Luke. He writes Acts. And yet what a huge section in the midst of it. 
And yet past that, we don't know. I mean, again, you get this uh, opening where he just says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. And so we know it's written to him. And, and whether it's a benefactor or whether it's a master, I tend to lean towards even just the beauty of it. That in one sense, I like that just taking the name of it. Taken the name that is written to those who love God, written to those who are, in that sense, friends of God. And so I would almost even just begin this evening and ask, is that you? You know, are you, would you be one that would say, yeah, I, I, I love God. Like, I want to be a friend of God. I want, I want to be in that space. Then this is written for you. I mean, I think it's written in very intentionally towards those. If it doesn't land there for you, then it would show you that, that in so many ways, that's where God would want to bring you into a space that you would recognize that God himself would speak to you, that God is longing that we would be those who are in that space. And so this book is written to those who are there. May it be you. May you be one who finds yourself in that space. Well, we notice this little beginning uh, of the book of Acts. Let's just read through those first few verses and notice what it tells us. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, whom he had also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." To Theophilus, it's written, what's it about? Well, he gives it to us right there in verse 1, right? I mean, you probably caught it. You may already be pretty much aware of this, but let me remind you. He says, the former account, that's the Gospel of Luke. The former account, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, uh, both to do and to teach. That kind of helps us even get a, a lens into this. I would tell you by inference what he's telling us, what we're about to read is a continuation, that this book in that sense is what Jesus continues to do, that we look at this and think about that this book is about that. Jesus said he would do it. He told Peter there in Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church, and and the gates of Hades is is not going to stand against it. There's a a sense that Jesus is doing that. I say that because, again, it's just maybe helpful to say it's not really the Acts of the Apostles. If you, I don't know what translation of the scriptures you have uh, here this evening, if you have a New King James, it might say at the top of your, you know, letter there, the Acts of the Apostles. And whether that's something you understand or not, let me just tell you, that's not in the original. Uh, The the New Testament and its recording written in the Greek language didn't have titles, Uh, didn't have titles in each letter. We gave uh, those titles to it so that we could say, hey, turn to the book of Acts, (laughs) you know, turn to the book of, of that, you know. It wasn't the way it was written in those days, and so different Bibles will say it differently. Some will say, uh, you know, the Acts of the Apostles. Some even say the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but all that is kind of man-made in the midst of it, and so I would tell you, I don't think it really is the Acts of the Apostles. It records a little bit. Uh, We get to see the Apostles, but we don't see all of them. Uh, we don't see, it's not like we tra- we're tracking the lives of the, uh, of the 11 or, or those that Jesus went through. It's not as if we're looking at each one. We get to see Peter a little bit, transitions to Paul in the midst of it, but it's not really focused on any of those. And so I, again, would tell you that 
It is what Jesus is telling us, that in what Luke is telling us, that what it is in that sense, looking at the gospel of Luke, what Jesus began to do, and this now being what Jesus is continuing to do, that he is the focus, that he is the one that's doing that. But if we wanted to be really kind of particular on it, we'd say he's doing it by the work of the Spirit, and he's doing it through his people. And so it really is this beginning of the church. It's this beginning of what God is doing in the midst of his people. He's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is already being kind of pressed in those early verses, telling us that even you know, in Christ, by the work of the Spirit, was doing all of these things and inviting us to see that. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. So Acts is this unique book because it is, in many ways, uh, one of the, the key historical spaces in the New Testament. It connects the Gospels, to the rest of the epistles. It's as if we, you know, we read through the life of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see Jesus come and, and live and die on the cross and rise again. And you get to the end of the Gospels, and that's where you are. And then, you know, as we get to the rest of the, of the New Testament, it begins to see the work of the church working. The book of Acts finds itself in that space, a space of what Jesus is, is, is working in the midst of this. It's kind of why I even titled it that way. I don't know if you saw it, at the, at the beginning of our study, I kind of just said, you know, Acts, what Jesus is continuing to do through the Holy Spirit, through his church, that there is a sense of being able to see that. There is a sense of, of being able to see a little bit what's taking place there, but it should be a little bit more. Because in many ways, Acts is an interesting book because it's an unfinished book. Uh, it doesn't really have an ending. If you've read through the whole book of Acts, you, know, you get to the end of it. It doesn't end. It doesn't ever like, okay, like that's so... It, it's because in many ways it's a start. It's a start of something that began 2,000 years ago that is still continuing, that is God working through his church. And so saying it in a different way, if that's you, if you're one who loves God and you're a part of, a, of his people, this is where that work began to move. And so we find our, our roots in that we find beginnings in that. We find rhythms that, that seek to speak into our lives of what that looks like and how that plays out. So this begins to set framework for us. This begins to set examples for our lives that it isn't just as if we're reading. You know, like, oh, that's interesting. That happened to them. It's as if you know, we're reading like, no, that's, okay, that's where that began. That which is supposed to be flowing into our lives. Like, yeah, that's how this began to play out and, and how this moves forward into a way that becomes incredibly relevant. Becomes incredibly relevant to where we are that it's meant to be this space of what Jesus is continuing to do. So reading it one more time. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is now the continuation. Until the day that he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, again, just kind of note that, he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to his apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after suffering many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So locking it into the timeline, it's 40 days. As you open up Acts right now, it's been 40 days since the resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave, and now he has showed himself to the, the apostles. Now he's made himself known by infallible proofs. I mean, it's like, okay, he is really alive. Seen by over 500 witnesses, Paul would tell us in Corinthians. Just an incredible reality, and now we're there. We are 40 days after 
the resurrection, and we're right in this space. Ten days later, he's going he's to ascend, which is in the verses right in front of us. I'm sorry, no, he's going to ascend here. Ten days from this point is going to be the day of Pentecost, where the church really begins to pour out, so making that clear. Right here in this 40 days, he's going he's to ascend and, and, and rise and, and yet get to watch through all of this incredible account. We begin to think through just the things that are there, and to that, in that space, as Jesus is there with them, having risen from the grave, getting ready to depart, getting ready to kind of you know, roll this and say, hey, guys, take this, take this to the world, he begins to speak to them. And I want you just to notice the first thing he lands. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the key issue that Jesus begins to unpack, the key beginning to the book of Acts, is now this space where he's going to tell them, hey, you need this. Don't go yet. Don't, don't begin this work which he has given them, this great commission, this part to take the gospel into the known world, but he tells them, you know, don't do that yet. Don't yet depart. Don't yet begin this, you know, move and work of, the, of, of taking the church to the world. He says, but you need to wait for the promise of the Father, verse 4, which he, he said, you have heard from me. Like God promised it. I reiterated it. And John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. Okay. So we need to walk around this for just a couple of moments, kind of think through what Jesus just said and think through both it historically, but honestly for us, maybe the key issues is to think this through for us. So we kind of need to just deal with a kind of a theological issue, deal with some, some, some weights in the midst of this, um, and then talk about it practically. And then before we go further, I will pause and see if you have questions that you want to ask about that, because there's a hundred ways we could go with this. But let me just kind of just take you to, just to, to the kind of the, the, the bone of contention or the area that we need to make sure we get clear. And the question that rises for the Bible students and those who are looking at this is that when we think about this, which Jesus is talking about, the baptism of the Spirit, there is a sense of watching it flow out historically. But the question becomes for us practically, is that something that Jesus is talking about that there that we have now, as Christians, that all Christians now have, do we get this in our salvation, or is this something subsequent to that, that's something that is meant to be looked for after salvation? Now, again, some of you are like tracking with that, and some of you aren't. If you don't, I just want to pause and say good, very good, godly people who I love and respect find themselves on both sides of this. So this isn't one of these places that say, hey, this is absolute, and everybody who's got the Bible right is over here. No, there's, there's, some, there's some good, godly people that fall on both sides of this who are, love God, love his word. And so, again, you're going to find yourself trying to figure this out. Okay, which one is it? So let me take the tack of we get it at salvation. In one sense, we could think about it that there is an incredible reality that is now ours in Christ, that the work of the Spirit is ours, that what Jesus did on dying on the cross and rising from the grave, he gave us this brand new thing that he says, you know, I, I need to go. 
I need to go because if I don't go, I'm not, you, you won't get the Spirit. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And it became this thing that had never been before, that had never existed in this way before in, in the history of, of humankind and the broken world that we live in, that because of our, our sin being paid for, that now the Holy Spirit would take up residence inside of us. I think about it this way. Paul would say it in the book of Romans. He says, but now you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So quickly, just tracking. Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're not a follower of Jesus. It's now part and parcel of our salvation, so much so it defines us. Now, that's both radical and wonderful, but it's also a little bit challenging because that means, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you've always known. I mean, this is what you've had from the moment you got saved. It didn't exist before this. It didn't exist before this. And so sometimes uh, we can lose sight of that. We can lose sight of, you know, because we're just used to this. So, you know, we, we've always known this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that has always been there. And the work of the Spirit has done radical things. In part of the baptizing of the Spirit, he has brought us into the body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians, it would say, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, where the Jews or Greeks, where the slaves are free. You've been all made to drink of the one Spirit. So that if we're followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has brought us into this brand new space that we're a part of the body of Christ. He has baptized us using the same word uh, that is used here into that. And so there's an incredible reality that in one sense, we gaze on something that is essential, that is essential to being saved and, and being a part of it. And so it could be that they were just waiting for it. Uh, that, that that had not yet fallen out yet. Jesus said, hey, he was going to send, he was going to send the Spirit. And so what we could be reading here in the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is something that was a one-time event that just kind of happened at the beginning, but from that point forward, every follower of Jesus has that. And I, I would just kind of recognize, again, some of you would fall very, very solidly uh, on that side of the equation, and, and not wrongly so, and not wrongly so, and you would say, hey, this is, this is this key space that they needed what we now have, that we have this work of the Spirit. That said, others would fall onto the other side of it, and they would say, no, the baptism of the Spirit is different than salvation, that it's a subsequent experience, that it's a subsequent need for power. Not that it always has to happen subsequently. Sometimes it could happen instantaneously, but if we were to look through the entire book of Acts, we would find out sometimes it seems that the pouring out of the Spirit happens when people get saved, sometimes it happens afterwards, and, and some would say they would look at that both as a, as a pattern, but also a way that God works. In fact, some would even kind of think, hey, the pronouns themselves become powerful. So you think about it this way. The work of the Spirit can almost fall into three different categories by pronoun, uh, that he is with us, that he is with us. And so Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be with us. He would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Like he is, he is in our world, and he is you know, in the midst of our world, and so there's not anybody who is not in that space where the Holy Spirit is convicting, that he's with us, that he's at work in our lives. Then for those of us who come to know Jesus, he becomes inside of us, that he now takes residence inside of us and, and works in our life. But some would kind of point out, hey, the idea of the idea of on us is different. 
It's not so much the, the infilling or him being inside of us, but it's a power that would come upon us. Much like it's going to talk about in verse 8, that there would be power that would come upon our lives, enabling us to move forward, enabling us to, to walk in, in the midst of this. Again, we would see this throughout you know, the Bible, but we could see this throughout history. It's been called a lot of things over uh, the history of the church, whether it be called the abundant Christian life or second work of, of grace or, or just so many incredibly different terms. But one of the things we would know by looking at both revivals and history is, hey, there is sometimes this space where the Holy Spirit just pours out in power on people who are already His. So kind of where do we land with that? Where do we go with that? Well, you know, I just want to just kind of look at this and say, hey, you know, my biggest concern is not for, you know, making sure you get this, you know, kind of dot your I's and cross your T's on this. I want you to feel the weight of it. I want you to feel even the invitation of it. I'll give it to you in somebody else's words who I really, really enjoy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, in his book, Unspeakable Joy, it's a great book on the work of the Spirit, by the way, if you're looking for one. He simply says, I want to talk to you today about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may call it what you want, but I want to know. Have you experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit? He says, you can call it whatever you want. I'm just asking. Have you experienced it? And he writes uh, as a Calvinist to a bunch of that would kind of fall within that framework. And he says, I know that many of you would say to my question about the Holy Spirit, well, we got it at conversion. There's no need for any more experience. He says, I know that's what some of you would say theologically. I know that's what you would answer. But he says, I just have one question for you. You know, to ask you, if you got it at conversion, where in God's name is it? I mean, if you have everything that this is, if you have the power of God at work in there, then I just want to know, I, I don't see it. You know, and, and in one sense, it's an invitation for us to say, hey, if we could just get, if we get locked into the, the framework of just trying to understand or even argue, and, and you could argue, and I could, you know, argue on either side of this, but I just want to tell you, when I look at this, I want you to feel it not so much as a place that you would get lost in trying to figure this out, but certainly a place that God is inviting you to it. I know for me, and I'm just going to try to say it in the most simple way, I read this with great desire. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are, but I'm just going to tell you, when I think about the work of the Holy Spirit in our world, and I think about the work, the promises that Jesus gives of the Holy Spirit, I find myself gazing on them with fresh desire. Not a space that I go, well, I'm so glad I already have that. I'm so glad that it's already happened for me. I, I long for it. Now, I am aware, again, without getting too much more technical into this, I'm aware of the danger of kind of an experience or seeking experience. I'm, a I'm aware of the dangers that people try to create those things and to create some kind of an emotional thing. Not what I'm after. Not what I'm after at all. But I want what Jesus is speaking about. I want this. I want there's a sense that, 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 that there would be a, an enabling by him to live to serve, to be everything that he wants to be. And what we find here in the book of Acts is that's what's being pressed. So again, as I think about the theology of it, I've tried to try to answer some of the questions, a bunch more we could say, but I just want to say at the very context of it, there is a sense that Jesus begins the book of Acts by saying, you need power. Like you need this. If you're going to go out into the world, if you're going to make a difference in this world, you need power. And he's inviting us to it. He's inviting us to it. He's inviting us to a space where we could be enabled by God to live for Him, 
We could be enabled by God to, to overcome sin. We could be enabled by God to live the lives that he would have for us. We'd be enabled by God to serve him. There's an, an invitation for us to have that, this baptism. So kind of think about it this way. He says, I want you need to be baptized. Now, again, I want to just note the words that Jesus says. He tells us there in verse 4. He says, you know, you, you need that which the Father himself promised. And Jesus said, you've heard it from me. You've been baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. The word baptism has the idea of being immersed into, being, you know, that you're just dropped into. And so again, that's the idea of you've been, if you're a follower of Jesus, then hopefully you've been baptized. And you have been spiritually, but hopefully that's taken place. And and baptism becomes this picture of being immersed into this. But now there's this need for this immersion in the Spirit, where, again, if it just works for anybody else, I'm just going to kind of, you know, ride the little silly illustration that's working in my head right at this moment. It's almost the idea of, you know, riding the wave uh, or whatever, letting, let, you know, you're going to be immersed in him. You want him to carry us. You want us to, to be that where his power is moving us forward, where he is working into our lives, everything that's there. And again, I don't know where that lands for you. I don't know how clearly I'm defining it for you, but I'm just going to tell you again, I find myself with desire. Sitting here tonight, just standing here tonight before you and saying, boy, I sure would like that. I'm so glad that this is available. I'm, so, I'm glad there's power. I want more. I, I, I want, you know, I, I, I want him to have more of my life. I want to see him at work in ways that would bring glory and honor to Christ. I want to see him working in power and majesty and ways in my life. And so certainly as we gaze at this, as we see this very beginning, it's an invitation to it. It's an invitation to it. And so I don't know where you are, but I'm hoping that you'd be in that space where you would gaze upon it and say, God, I'm asking for that. I want all that you have. I want you to work in my life, through my life, on my life. I want, I want to see your work go forward where, where, you know, that you would ask for this and, and ask for him to work in that. Well, we'll talk about that more later, but let me quickly pause like I said I would do and just give an opportunity for any questions that you would have in the midst of that because, again, there's about 100 different places I could have gone with that. But let me just take a few questions and then we'll keep moving through that. So you think about the baptism of the Spirit, the beginning here of the book of Acts, what questions do we have? I know I didn't answer it that well, so either you're thinking about it or you're too shy to ask, and if you want to ask me later, you can, but I just want to make sure I give space. Yeah. Um, that seems to me to speak towards this, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah, it, it, it would seem like he's inviting us to ask on a regular basis mm-hmm. to fill us afresh with the Spirit. Excellent, excellent. So if you didn't hear that, Billy was talking about the passage where Jesus is explaining this. He says, hey, your, your father, you know, if, if you ask for, for bread, he's not going to give you a, a stone. And, and he says, if you, know, if you come to him and ask, he says, if you ask, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And he invites us to be in that space where we look upon him as a, as a father who is longing to meet our lives. There's hungers that there's probably, hopefully in your life, like I'm wanting to be. How do I do this? How do I overcome? How do I overcome sin? How do I, you know, walk in these things? He's, you're, you should be wanting that. And so we're, we're called to, to pray for this. We're called in, you know, the book of Galatians to walk in the spirit. 
I'm called in Ephesians to be, you know, continually being filled by the Spirit. So there is this invitation again towards this. There's an invitation towards what that would look like. And the great danger in, in many ways of our lives is living in a space where um, it would talk about it in Timothy. It says, you know, we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. You know, we, we know it, but we're not actually, there's, there's not power you know, the power of God at work in our lives. And so it's an invitation to that. Well, let's keep going. More of that we need to talk about because it's found in the text, but let's go again there. So Jesus gives them to us. I mean, he is just, I mean, it's this incredible beginning. Like, hey guys, you need this. You need the baptism of the Spirit. Wait for it. Look for it. They ask a question. It says in verse six, there, you know, therefore when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. It's a great little beginning. It's a great little beginning. And again, it kind of creates a foundation for us. They ask the question, Lord, is it time? Is it time? I mean, they have a sense of, of both the promises of the Old Testament, the promises that what God's going to do in Israel. He doesn't say those aren't coming. He doesn't say that what God you know, promised to Israel is going to fill. He just answers and says, it's not for you to know. You're asking one of those questions that you're not going to get an answer for. You're asking, is it time? Is this what's happening now? Is this, is this season in the midst of it? And he just tells us, hey, you don't know it. You, don't, you, you don't, do not know God's times and seasons. And I want to just kind of lay it again. If we're reading through the book of Acts, we're reading this kind of foundation for the church, and crazy thing, 2023, what's one of the most often asked questions many times by Christians? How much longer is till Jesus comes back? I mean, like, when is he coming back? I mean, is it now? I mean, is, you know, when, when is that happening? I mean, the same heartbeat that's there is still ours. Like for many of us, we're hungering. Like how much longer? When is this going to happen? And the same answer is still our answer. That's never what we're going to know. If anybody tells you they know, they don't know. Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows it. And that's not what we're to spend our time on. And so in the most loving and careful way, I just want to tell you, it's a waste of resources for you to try to figure out what God told you you're not going to be able to figure out. And that would be very, very helpful. Again, some of you, again, have no idea. Others of you are like, I spent time on that. You know, like, like six months, like I was trying to, you know, I mean, you, you, you spent time trying to figure out what God told, would just tell you, like, don't do it. It's not for you. That's, you're never going to know it. God's never going to unpack that for you. He's never going to answer that because in some ways that's his. That it's his sovereign time, his times, his seasons, those are totally his. And so when we think about who we are as the people of God, it's under that. It's under his perfect timing. It's under his sovereign care. And, and we get to live in a space where that is not what we're supposed to be about. Not that we're not hungry for it. We are supposed to be hungry for it. And the Bible's clear. We should be crying out, your kingdom come. Crying out, you know, Lord, come quickly. That's a good thing. It's just not for us to know. You know, it's not, he's not going to answer the question, when? How much longer? Uh, when is that going to happen? They had the same question. He says, that's not for you to know. Instead, he launches them back into what he just told them. He says, but, verse 8, in the most you know, well-known verse here in Acts chapter 1, but you got to get, but, so you don't know, but here's what you should be doing. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, to the end of the earth. He says, here's what you need to be about. Here's, here's what you are. You need the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can represent me, be my witnesses throughout the entire world, beginning there in Jerusalem, and literally it would. Going to Judea, the surrounding countryside, eventually Samaria, to the end of the world. Take the gospel to the end of the world. Now, this is one of those verses that we've spent time on in other spaces, and so, again, we're kind of doing an overview. We're kind of looking at the whole chapter, so I'm trying not to dive deeply uh, into the midst of it, but this heartbeat is what we are. This is what we do. We are to have God's power to be his representatives in not one of these, all of these. It's worth just kind of catching the and. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's not one or the other. It's as if, hey, we're supposed to be a part of the gospel, impacting locally, going all the way to globally. That's who we are. That's meant to be our heartbeat. That's meant to be what we're about. That's meant to be why we're here. And he promises us power. That Greek word dunamis, it speaks of enabling power, of strength, of enablement. And he says, when that happens, you will be. So there's the invitation again. There's this invitation to something that God is offering us. And I just want to ask, you know, as you're kind of looking at that, that's who we are. How's that going for you? Like, I mean, I mean, you find yourself thinking, I'm doing a really, really good job, you know, being a witness of, of Christ in the world. Maybe you are. And if you are, it's probably because you're doing this. But maybe you sit there this, this evening and thinking, well, that's, I'm not that good at that. I'm not very good at shining Christ into this world. Uh, you know, I'm glad other people are doing that. But he's inviting us to it. He says that you want to be? You want to be my witness? You want to be those who who shine that into the world, he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you'll be it. That There'll be power, there'll be a dynamic, there'll be an enabling that would help you to do that. And one of the great dangers right here is this is so powerful, but some of us really don't believe it. Uh, you know, it's been said, well said, that for most of us as believers, we live way beneath our privileges in Christ. Like, okay, you know, here's what he's inviting us to do, to be, to have, and it's like we're content, you know, way down here of just, you know, making it through us to saying, God, that, that, there's power? I mean, if there could be power that would help, I, I, I want that. And, and there ought to be a sense that we gaze upon this and, and long for it, long that God would work this in us, because I'm telling you in a, in a simple way, that's really one of the reasons why you're here. You know, we did this on Sunday mornings in first, and sorry, in Second Corinthians, and we talked about reasons that we're still here, and some of even our suffering, and things that God works in the midst of that, and we talked about that part of this is all about the gospel, and that, that really one of the reasons that you and I are still here is for the sake of making a difference, for the sake of, of the gospel going forward. I mean, if it wasn't so, I mean, if it wasn't so, then the moment you got saved, uh, everything you needed was, was in Christ. I mean, that was t- paid for. You're made righteous in Christ. It's like, take you home. You know, I mean, if, that, if that's all this was, that's what would have happened. And yet the danger is for some of us, that's how we're living. Like we got saved and now we're just waiting, <laughs> waiting for the rapture or him to take us home. It's like, okay, you know, we're just coasting it out now, you know, and just waiting for him instead of recognizing you know, we are left here for on purpose. 
There is an intention for our lives. There is an intention that what he is longing for is for us to be his witnesses. And there's ability to do that. If all it was was instruction, if all it was was, hey, you should do this, it would be like, okay, this is impossible, that sounds too much. But if he's telling us it's possible, he's laying it before us in an incredible way. And so again, it ties into much of this whole chapter one that is this place of power. Well, let's keep going. So he gives them this promise, like, hey, this is going to happen. And then now in verse 9, when he had spoken these things while they watched. So they just, he's promised them power, told them about the power of the Spirit. They're watching. He is taken up in a cloud. And, they, and, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steady towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels, who said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So we watch Jesus ascend. 40 days, 40 days after the resurrection, and now he goes. And I don't know how to say it, but I just want you to imagine it with me for a moment. There they are. They're talking with Jesus. Jesus is giving them this. And then he ascends. And they watch him. It says they, they watch him ascend and he goes and he, and he goes right into a cloud that receives him and then they're just standing there. I mean, they're just, I mean, it's really, you know, great just to imagine, you know, like, oh, this is like, <laughs> like, okay, he really just left. I mean, like that just really just happened. I mean, Jesus just rose and then these angels just pop on the scene and they're like, why are you guys staring? <laughs> why are you guys just staring there? You know, he's gonna come back, but he's gonna come back the same way he just went. So in some ways, this kind of ties into this idea that, you know, we don't know God's times and seasons, but understand this, he is coming back. He is coming back, and he's going to come back the same way he went. He's coming back in the clouds. He's coming back visibly. He's going to come back and descend to the earth. And why do you need to know that? Because the lies have been so many. Jesus would talk about it in Matthew. He tells us, hey, there are going to be people that come and tell us, hey, Jesus already came back. You know, he came back into the inner rooms. He came back and met with a few people. Uh, yeah, he's already come back. And it's like, no, that's not how this is going. We are waiting for Jesus to come back. So in some ways, this frames the work that the book of Acts lays out. It's going to start with Jesus' ascension, and it's going to end with Jesus coming back. That, that this work that Acts is this unfolding story of it, it is bound in this place, and it's the work of Christ all the way through, the work of Christ in it, but it leaves us in this space that we're gazing ahead towards a finish line, towards a space where this is going to be done. Where, where he's going to come back, where he's going to you know, come back riding out on the white horse like it describes on Revelation 19. He's going to come back ruling and reigning, and yet here we are watching this. And so again, it's just great again to have the angels say, like, why, you know, why, why are you even focusing on that? Because you're going to wait for him to come back. And so they do, we do. So what do they do? Well, they respond. Verse 12, so they return to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, leaving the Mount of Olives, making their way back into the city of Jerusalem. It's near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they'd entered, they went up into the upper room 
where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So it lists out the, the 11 apostles there. Like these are the ones that were there. Judas, you know, died uh, betraying Jesus, hung himself. And so here's the 11. And so they go back there. They're, they're going into this upper room, maybe the same upper room where the, they, they had the, the Last Supper. And it just tells us these all continued in verse 14. And one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Like, these are all there. And, and so they're in this space where, as we're watching through this kind of foundational moment, they're waiting, and they're, they're continuing in prayer. So I want to say this really, really well, and I don't know how to say it really, really well. I just want you to see that this is like the first gathering <laughs> in the body of Christ. Like this is the first part of the book of Acts. We're gonna see an incredible sermon in Acts chapter two. We're gonna see, you know, lots of things that make up what church life is, but it begins here. And it's been well said that in so many ways, the, the, the place of prayer is the foundational space for the body of Christ. That there's that space that both the prayer meeting in a church, but prayer in our lives, it's meant to be that way. In fact, I just want to come back to it and say that the heartbeat of this chapter, again, is inviting us to a place of, of, uh, of power and dependence on God. And if you believe this, if you believe what Jesus is offering, I would say their response will be your response, which is what? You'll pray. You'll do what, what Billy was pointing out in that verse where Jesus said, hey, the Father, he, he wants to give you. He wants to bless your life. He loves you. Like, he's not gonna give you, if you ask for bread, he's not gonna give you a stone and he's gonna give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That there's no way you really believe what I'm telling you unless it's moving you to ask for it. That would really be the definition of it. See, if you're here this, more, this evening and you're like, well, I, I would like everything God has for me, I'm in. Like, I, I'm, I'm all in for his power. If you're not praying for it, you're not. If it hasn't moved you into a place of saying, God, I, I want to, to, to know you more. I need more of what you're, I want the spirit to fill me. I want, I want to walk in the power of the spirit. I want to abide in Christ. And it, and it should move us into an incredible dependence because that's where this begins. That's where it flows out. And as much as I can give it to you in a very practical way, if you're going to take one thing, you know, from this evening, I would like you to, to, to make this a part of your life where you are praying for what God is offering, that you're praying for the work of the Spirit, that you're gonna pray for what He is saying we desperately need, that you're gonna begin asking Him for that because that's what they're doing and they're doing it in a beautiful way. Like, they're all there. In fact, it's gonna tell us in a couple of verses, there are 120 of them there and they are just continuing in prayer. It's not like they just pray. They're just continuing in this place of prayer. They're continuing in this place, and that becomes the, the foundational building block of everything that God has and everything that would be a part of that. And I simply invite you both to feel that and see that, that you would be, verse 14 would be you. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, that you would continue into that space. 
So this chapter has one more space for us, and it is actually the rest of the chapter that begins there in verse 15, running down uh, through verse 26, and it really is what they do next, and it's the place of Matthias. So you may be aware of it, but I'll tell you what, let me read that whole section with you, and then we're going to talk about it and how it fits into everything else we've talked about this evening. It says, And in those days Peter uh, stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and he obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man, that is Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, that you know, in falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. So again, just kind of gives you some gory pictures, but so literally he gets his pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. He throws them down at the feet. They buy a potter's field, fulfilling scripture, and, and Judas goes and hangs himself. Peter lets us know that, uh, you know, kind of in a gory way, you know, that not only does he hang himself, he then falls down, guts out on, on, on everything, entrails gushing out, bursting open. It became known to all those who are dwelling in Jerusalem so that they, in their own language, uh, it is called Akadama, that is the field of blood. So now this is kind of Judas's heritage there. This field is there. But Peter is telling him, he says, for this is written in the book of Psalms. And he begins to quote out of the book of Psalms. He says, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So Judas is done, like God's done with him, but there, there needs to be a replacement for Judas, that there needs to be this. Therefore, Peter puts out to him, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, uh, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. By the way, cool little nugget in there, because sometimes we might miss it. He says, okay, we're going to pick somebody who's been with us since the beginning. We're going to pick somebody that was there from the time that Jesus was baptized all the way to the time he was resurrected. Sometimes we can read through the New Testament and we just assume, hey, that was just the 12. That was just the 12 that Jesus called, but it certainly wasn't that. Jesus called the 12, the apostles, out of that, but there was a larger group of people that traveled with Jesus. In fact, there's two of them who have been there the whole time. Two guys who have been a part of the gathering around Jesus, a part of the spaces that are there. And so they proposed two of them, verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and this apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and a lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right. So this chapter ends with this account of Judas being taken out, and now we've got to replace him. I mean, biblically, scripturally, it's going to happen. They know what needs to happen. And so they, they go through this place of Matthias being chosen, and that really kind of forms itself into this first chapter. Now, this raises up a question. Did they do the right thing? Is Matthias the one who's supposed to replace Judas? Now, before I answer this question or explore it with you, I want to say it kind of the same way I talked about the baptism of the Spirit. Very, very good, godly people 
differ on this. Very strong Bible-believing teachers who love God's word. They, it, it's an interesting thing to read commentaries and go, okay, you're over here, and then this one falls over here, and then this one falls over here, and then this one falls, it falls on it very differently. So let me kind of explore the two possibilities with you, and then I'll tell you where I land. So it is possible that everything we just read is exactly what God had. Um, it is scriptural. Uh, it is what God said. It is seeking to walk in this. It is entirely possible that you know they kind of you know, that what we're just watching is a good example of you know looking at Scripture and trying to to walk in that. Matthias really may be the one who you know steps in to take. Uh, the, the place of Judas, there's, you know, some would kind of look through it and say, well, we don't ever hear from Matthias again. Well, we don't hear from most of the apostles again. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, I mean, they just, the, the rest of the book of Acts doesn't have any of it, so an absence of it doesn't, you know, guarantee that it's wrong. It's entirely possible that what is laid out to us is just a good example of you know, trying to walk in what God has and, and walk in, in his scripture and laying it out. And again, some would fall, solidly find there. Others uh, would look there and say, mm, nope, I think what we have here is a mistake. I think what we have here is maybe them getting ahead of God because uh, we get an account you know, as we continue the New Testament that Paul ends up being made an apostle, and many believe that Paul is Judas's replacement. Now, just to say it very, very simply, somebody did replace Judas. I mean, somebody absolutely, you know, is the replacement that God has. In fact, we get to read in the book of Revelation that when the new city of Jerusalem is there, it says, you know, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you walk around the city and the foundations are laid and each foundation has one of the apostles' names. And so kind of just as a, you know, goofy little, you know, I don't know, Bible teacher kind of nerd thing, it's like some of us, we're just going to run up there and see, like, who is it? Like, is it Matthias or Paul? Like, I mean, which one's on the, on the, on the pillar there? Because one of their names is probably there. I mean, one of them is the replacement. It could be Paul, though. I mean, we think about what Paul says. He tells us that he was the last uh, that he was, you know, that G he, Jesus was seen by him also, is one born out of due time. He says, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That Paul, even though he wasn't physically present during that, man, he, Jesus himself meets with him. Kind of takes him on a, you know, a personal course of seeing that. Paul becomes one who, who sees Jesus, who is a witness of, of, of all the things that are there, a witness of his power. And he tells us, I'm an apostle, but I, I, because of, I, I was born out of due time. Like, I was born late. I mean, spiritually born late. Like, I didn't gain into that. And so many would look at this and say, hey, it, it very well might be Paul, again, for a few reasons. I mean, we, we, we think about what's even laid there as Paul tells us that. Again, Matthias, though he's named here, we do never hear from him again. And that, it's an argument from, you know, nothing there, but there is nothing. In fact, even in chapter 2, they're still called the eleven. Um, that they, they don't ever get there. So it's entirely possible that what we're reading here is kind of a mistake. So again, good Bible students on both sides. I think about people like one of my favorite commentators, Warren Wiersbe. 
that I've kind of encouraged even in the last days, he falls on the place that Matthias is actually like God's choice. And so he lands there. But I'm just going to tell you, again, just where I personally land with grace, saying if you disagree with me, yeah, you can be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. No, you can disagree with me, and you might be right. Um, I find on the other side of it, I find myself looking at this and in the midst of the context thinking, now, I look on this as a warning, and I find it to be a good warning. What's the warning? Well, Jesus has just invited them. Hey, don't do anything without waiting for the Spirit. You wait for him. And now they take a step into this, and they begin to do something in their own strength. Uh, they, you know, they look on it. They say, hey, it needs to happen. It ought to happen. They come up with two options, which is kind of a funny thing. Like, God, pick A or B. Like, you know, here, we, we're, we're going to give you two options, God, so you only have to choose one between these two, and you pick which one you actually want. And then they cast lots. Now, lots is an, an interesting thing. Uh, we know in the Old Testament, there was a, a place where the high priest was able to discern God's will through the Urim and the Thummim that would kind of play down into the midst of this. Lots would move in a lot of different ways through church history. It's more than a rolling of the dice, but not much more. Um, and it's just enough to just quickly tell you, hey, this is the only time it's ever mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus never does it. Jesus never casts lots, and they never do it again. Uh, they never do it again after chapter one. It's never encouraged anywhere in the epistles. It's never encouraged anywhere else in scripture. So I would look at this as kind of a man-centered way to kind of step into this, uh, that they tried to you know, fix this themselves. But here's where we kind of leaned with this. But God doesn't go out of his way to correct it. I mean, it, you know, if, if it is wrong, it's not like he says in chat, verse one of chapter two, and they totally missed this whole thing, you know, so now I had to fix it, and yet we're left to kind of like, well, why? What are we supposed to see from this beginning chapter in the church? Well, in the most gentle way, I will tell you that I think this kind of thing has been repeated a zillion times since the book of Acts, that good people, godly people, have looked on things that even God wants and God says, and then done it in their own power, uh, done it in their own strength. That, that throughout church history, it's happened over and over again. And the same grace that doesn't, you know, spank them right here and send lightning down upon them is the same grace that he is working with today. That, you know, in many ways, it just, just the work of God goes on that you know, doesn't ever champion it, doesn't ever get behind it, but it just continues to move and God pours out his spirit in chapter two in a different way. Not on what they did, but entirely outside of that. And God has been so gracious to do that throughout history. I find it to be helpful. I find that process to, to be helpful even in the midst of what I'm trying to talk to you about this evening that there is a sense of just recognizing the danger. So let's come back to it and say it in the most simple way. What is chapter one about? It's about our need for God to do his work in us. It's about a need for the spirit that Jesus is telling us, hey, you know, what Jesus is continuing to do is through the baptism of the spirit, we're not about knowing the times and the seasons, we're about power. We're about power that's gonna be about this till Jesus comes back and that's where we're supposed to pray and don't do a Matthias. Don't like take things into your own hand. I mean, there's incredible danger to say what that looks like. And it's true in church history, but it's true in this room. It's true in this room. 
It's true in some of our lives that we have looked upon what God wants for us, even good things, and then we've, in our own strength, tried to do them. It doesn't work really well. And and so I want to end this evening with just, again, an appeal, an an appeal for the work of the Spirit. In fact, let me give it to you in a few quotes from from different people um, that maybe say it better than I have said it this evening, but hopefully with an invitation to say, you know, we have something held out to us that is so much more than human reasoning and human manipulation and human power. Think about it this way. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I quoted him a little bit earlier this evening. He just simply said, wherever there is an effectual ministry, wherever you see real things happening, the work of God going forward, it's because of this working. It is because of this energetic working, which is that word dunamis in Acts 1.8. You know, this power of God through the Holy Spirit. If ever you see it, if ever you see work, it is that. It is the work of the Spirit working in the world that that's what brings about the power. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, 90% of what they did would come to a halt. I mean, take the Holy Spirit out of the the early pages of, of the book of Acts, and it screeches to halt because so much. Is, it's the Holy Spirit leading, the Holy Spirit guiding, the power of the Holy Spirit pouring out. And Nebuchadnezzar just simply said it this way. He says, the danger today is if the Holy Spirit were taken away from today's church, only 10% of what it does would cease. It's his, his opinion. I think it's a good one, and I think it's dangerously true. I think it's a dangerously true thing that what Jesus is telling us from the beginning, you need this we have a propensity to live without. We have a propensity to live on our own strength. Charles Spurgeon would say, quoting out of the book of Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, is a message that should make us lie in the dust and utterly despair of doing anything in and of our own self, seeing that all the power is of God alone. Says if we really begin to see this, this should scare us in in a good and godly way, like, God, I'm afraid of doing anything in my own strength. Boy, I'm afraid of doing anything in in, in the midst of it because what I desperately need is that. And so he just simply says, let us seek again to be baptized into the Holy Spirit and into fire. And we shall yet again behold the wonderful works of God. Like if this is what's available to us, then we should seek it. If this is what is there and in everything that Acts 1 is about, it has this fundamental theme that is just like power. (laughs) The Holy Spirit was given to us. Like he's gonna be our strength. He's gonna be our power. He'll help us to be witnesses. Like we could do this with him. And the final passage in it may just be a warning of a good example of those who didn't, who didn't wait, who didn't wait for God to do the work and move. And I just wanna invite you away from that and in to this. So there you go, Acts chapter 1. Hopefully meeting, hopefully drawing, drawing you to a space that isn't just history. It's not just how it began, it's how it's supposed to happen. That the church done rightly is meant to be done in his power. So let's do what Jesus said. Let's go before him and ask for it right now. Would you join me? Father, here we are. We've read through this, tried to make some sense of it, I hope, helpful. But one thing has just become very clear, that from the very get-go, your instructions were very plain. You have promised us. You have promised us power in the Holy Spirit. You've promised not to leave us alone. You have promised to be the power that would enable us to live, to shine for you, 
to be your witnesses into this world. And God, I want to come before you and believe you. And yet I come with just sorrow, believing that A.W. Tozer is probably so right, that so much that is called the church today is built on our own strength and our own wisdom and on human power, that if, Holy Spirit, you pulled back, it would just keep on going. It's not supposed to be that way. I know that. God, look upon us and where that's true in our lives, and I know it is in spaces. I know it is in spaces in me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry where that's true, and I recognize that our need for you is bigger than we ever have imagined. I think about what Jesus, you said, that, that you're the vine, we're the branches, and if we abide in you, we'd bear good fruit. But without you, nothing. Do it on our own. Nothing. Doesn't work. We are made for life in you. We're made for this connection. We're made for this power enabling of the Holy Spirit, walking in you. And so I just want to come and ask for it. I pray for power to pour out on your people right now to help them to live, to overcome sin, and to shine for you. God, I pray that we would be your witnesses. And so even right now, I pray for any here tonight that are not yours, that somehow even in the midst of this right now, that they would know they're on the outside looking in, that everything we've talked about tonight wasn't really talking to them because they didn't enter even at the beginning. They don't love you. They're not those who have been brought into a relationship with you. They're not those that have that. And Lord, even now, would you awaken in their heart their need to become those that have a relationship with you, have this space in Christ Jesus because you died, because you rose. This all becomes possible. May you draw these to you. I ask for that. As again, we just come tonight and ask for your work, your power, in, on, upon, flowing through. God, I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid of my strength. I'm afraid of my conniving. I'm afraid of anything I would do in my power, but I'm not afraid of what you would have. So with just a, a, a childlike space, looking at you as a father that would give us this because you said you would, would you give your spirit to those of us who are asking? We ask for that tonight as we thank you for your good work. In Jesus' name, amen.